Here we go, once again, off and running, November the 29th, 2015, lecture discussion 222, 222 on the Book of Romans. I was recognizing um, over the week that I could probably begin every lecture from here on out to the end of my so-called career uh, with Watch Therefore, Matthew 24, 42, and other places. That's Christ saying to us, and when I say us, I'm going to be more specific. He is saying to Israel and us by extension, we're going to see, I believe, the endings of the age of the Gentiles. Uh, so Nebuchadnezzar took Israel and Jerusalem in 586, beginning B.C., beginning the age of the Gentiles, and now it is coming to an end. And we may be the generation that sees the endings. And Christ said to that generation of Jews and us again that are grafted on, we are to watch. We are supposed to spend a lot of energy, time, effort watching. And um, uh, the sign of the taking of the bride, uh, as you know, I believe, is upon us. And, and we're to be alert. There's a readiness aspect of this. We have Noah and Lot we can look at what Noah and Lot represent, uh, represents and Lot's wife. Those are our kind of, if you wish to think of them as clues, uh, that would be fair. Um, no one knows the day or the hour that is in the God realm or God's throne room. He's put it on a Hebrew betrothal ceremony system so we can figure out what he means by that. When Christ says no one knows, he doesn't mean he doesn't know. He's omniscient. He's saying to us that the timing of the end of the age of the Gentiles, the timing of all of these events that we're to watch for are on a Hebrew betrothal ceremony, ceremony pattern. And so that gives us a lot of information, as does Lot, Lot's wife, and Noah. We can begin to compare their situations and our situation and see just how close we are. That would be, that's going to be a very, very exciting time for us. I got a wonderful, uh, uh, hi Jennifer from Arizona. Jennifer from Arizona was asking a question about the implications of the rapture on the rest of the world. And, uh, and I may address that here in a couple of weeks. But if I don't, uh, that's because uh, I'm just too tired or gone. Either one. No, I'm serious uh, about uh, taking a look at it. So, the point of it is, is that what are, what's going to happen to this world when the church is gone? We're in Leviticus 2, as you know, talking right now about salt. We'll spend the whole day on salt again. I read one commentator and he suggested to pastors I have, it's an old, old book, and he said, you know, a really good thing for you to do, pastors, is to go find salt everywhere in the Bible. Put all the references together and figure out what it means. And I went, yay, what a great idea. It's a shame people don't do it, more than any other reason because of salt being in Lot's wife. So that's what we're doing today, but uh, uh, it, is, it is an extraordinary time for us, and we should know as much about what is going to happen in this time. What are the implications of the salt coming out of the earth? What will happen? Who's become, who becomes vulnerable? That's the... Uh, that's the aspect of uh, Jennifer's question. Anyway, did you read the reports in the news this last week recording the movements of the Chinese military? Did anybody follow that? Yeah, I know Christopher does. He reads them before I do. 
Yeah, Dana as well. Good. The world military analysts are watching the Chinese military movements now. And they are seeing China doing something. What do you suppose China is doing? They're preparing for war. They have an infantry that is unmatched in the history of the world. If this is an infantry war, they cannot be beaten. And they are preparing, and they're mobilizing, they're anticipating. If you want to think of it this way, they're watching like we're supposed to be watching, and they're drawing conclusions from what they're seeing. And they've decided that war is imminent. They have no spiritual discernment, but nonetheless, the Chinese government is not going to be caught unprepared. They're prepared. So what's the obvious question? And you're also going to find many geopolitical commentaries out there right now written in the Jerusalem Post and some of these other uh, national uh, newspapers warning of the similarities of current world conditions in 1938. That's a common theme now all over the news media. Of course, 1938 was the rise of the Nazi military. You could begin to see the Nazi military start to make its movements, its birth pangs, if you will, before they actually acted. Adolf Hitler, as you all know, intended to seize the European and the African continents. That was one of his primary goals. And for a while, he allowed Stalin to believe that Russia could participate with him. And Japan likewise saw expansionist opportunities. They went into China, as you're aware. No one really could interpret what Mussolini was thinking. But uh, he was in the equation, albeit as a nuisance. So they think that 1938 is happening today. There isn't any dispute, by the way. There isn't anybody arguing against this position out there in the military uh, arena, if you will, or in the those who uh, do this as a occupation. Today, Russia has ambitions to expand and, and control all of Europe and the Middle East. And everyone knows it. Now, either Russia intends to do it directly, which is an occupational force. I don't think that that's uh, something that Putin is considering because he doesn't need to do that. All he needs to do is establish Russia as the agent for the Middle East oil reserves and distribution systems. He's able to do that. He controls Europe. He has them. They can't, they can't function. And if he is able to control Europe, and if he is able to control the Middle East, the Russia is, then that's going to have global implications. First thing that will happen if the oil to the European countries is under the control of Russia, uh, Europe will concede. And then, of course, you have uh, Russia's singular ally right now. And singular, I mean most important, Persia uh, or Iran, whichever you prefer. They're now been given the technologies and the financing, and they're on the precipice of a nuclear weapons capability. They're the Russian proxy. That's old news. We all know of that. But China is now sitting there in this circumstance, and they're moving their military. And you can watch them move it. That's really interesting. Google Earth. You can see what they're doing. 
They're trying to be surreptitious, but uh, it's very difficult to move that kind of equipment and that kind of manpower without anybody watching them today. I believe uh, that China will move against uh, Russian aggression if they think it's necessary. In other words, China is not going to allow the Russian-Persian Persian alliance to prevail in the Middle East. They can't because that oil also fuels who? China. If you don't have energy, what do you not have now? You have no manufacturing capability. You have no ability to move your military. But one thing else you don't have is you don't have food. And China is very, very subject to a mass starvation scenario. They're not going to let the Middle East oil be interrupted and controlled by Putin and Persia. So they're going to move. And, uh, and I think uh, as I'm speaking, they're doing it. Their military assets are being appropriately placed. So what exact thing has caused these forces to do this? Did you see it? Did we see it? Something has caused these responses. This is Newton's cause and effect, right? Basic physics. By the way, did you notice the Belgian rabbi? One of the most significant rabbis in all of Europe. Did you see what he said last week? I didn't do this, by the way, for the whole lecture. Just talk to you about what's going on in Europe and China and the Middle East and Russia. Um, I'll stop here in a second, but the Jewish rabbi shouted out last week, the Jews have no future in Europe. And he's right. But what made him say it? What did he see where he said the Jews have no future in Europe? Essentially, what is he saying to the Jews? Get out of here. This is going to happen again. It's 1938 all over again. They're coming to kill you again. Run for your lives. Flee while you can. What's the next obvious question? Where can they go? There's only one place they can go. That's right. They can only go to Israel. What does Netanyahu say to them? Come. Come now before you're dead. We need you. Let's get as many of us in here as we can. We will fight like the men of David. That's what they say. And the Jews are responding. Watch the number of young Israelis leaving France. Military age men. Go look it up just for fun. Watch therefore. What's Germany doing? Germany is accepting, with the refugee crisis that is occurring, with the terrorist attack in France, did Germany stem, some of those countries over there are beginning to lock their borders down to stop the Islamic refugees from coming in because they know they're infiltrated with with terrorists. How about Germany? How about France? None. None. They're still taking as many as they can. By the time this is done, Germany is going to accept hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of refugees. How would you like to be a Jew in Germany again? Here it comes again. I can just remember my father who watched this. He watched it all. And he stood up one time in a, 
the seminar and he started to talk about what he saw. He saw World War One. He saw World War II. He saw the Smelling Lewis fight. He saw Babe Ruth. He saw airplanes, automobiles. He was born in 1911. And he talked and talked about Adolf Hitler when he finally understood who Adolf Hitler was and who Stalin was. And then he saw the pictures that were brought back of those Holocaust camps. Eisenhower was very, very specific about that, General Eisenhower, President Eisenhower. Take pictures of this, because if we don't take pictures of this, someday they will say it never happened. And it's happening again. And if you're in Germany and you're in France and you're a Jew, you, they were, they're going to run for Israel. Just as who said? Just as your Bible says they will. At the end of the age of the Gentiles. This is a very great... By the way, just consider this. If Russia does control all the energy imports into Germany and Europe, what is the impact on the European Jews? What will Putin say? He controls you now. These are very grave times for the Jewish people. Just as it was in 1938. And God says to us, when you see these things, keep watching. Don't stop watching. Okay. That was the end of the seeker-sensitive, warm, fuzzy, delightful portion of the lecture. Now we'll go on to the miserable stuff. We left off last week with Mark 9 50. I'm going to read it here again, which is, and we're at Mark 9:50 because of the salt in the, in the, uh, excuse me, in the grain offering, the bloodless offering of Leviticus 2, or the second of the five offerings. So, we're studying salt. So let me read this again. This is 9:49. Excuse me. For every one will be salted or seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Now that's directly coming out of Leviticus 2. It is, Leviticus 2 tells us, 2.13, make sure salt is in every single sacrifice. And Christ himself, God is repeating it, for everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good. But if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourself and have peace. Have salt, have peace. And I I began to make the case that this is primarily a statement uh, of deity. What Christ is saying here has to do uh, with him once again declaring himself to be God and, and creator God. He is telling you, I have, I am God in front of you. That's what that statement that I just, for everyone will be seasoned with salt, or seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourself and have peace. I am saying to you, that is a statement of Christ declaring himself to be creator God. That's what I did last week, and that caused some, not many, but some to want more explanations and more substantiation. 
Um, they wanted to see more of how I logically came to that if, in fact, it was logical. And to which of that, I always respond the same, right? When somebody says, would you please explain yourself more, what do I do? I ask them more questions. That's right. It's kind of my style, as you know. So let's ask a couple of questions. What I just read, what's the context of that statement? What is That is the conclusion, essentially, of a subject that he gives. What's the subject that he's talking about? Well, I'll help you. Their worm does not die and the, and the fire is not quenched. That's the subject. What is that? Their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's Isaiah 66, 24, as you remember. That is the final words, the concluding words of the prophet Isaiah. He saved his is greatest, if you will, thought for last. That's why I always want to find the last words of these guys. I always want to lead, read the last thing they say. Um, and I kind of collect them. But especially the Bible, it's collected for us. But these, uh, I have, as you know, the last words of M.R. Dahan. I wanted to know, he knew he was dying. I wanted to know what he thought he should say on his radio broadcast. He tells his secretary, I believe, that, hey, I'm, I don't think I'm going to get through this. So what did he talk about? Isaiah finishes the book of Isaiah. Daniel finishes the book of Daniel. I want to know what they think is the last thing they should ever write. Did they know that would be the last prophecy that they would ever record? Did they even understand what they write? Daniel obviously didn't. He was trying to read Ezekiel to figure out what Ezekiel said. So they have these inspirational words and they put them to paper and uh, they may or may not understand it. But these are the last words of Isaiah. Their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And in, in Isaiah, it is there both times. The concluding words of the prophet Isaiah. And that is the context of for everyone will be salted or seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good. That's the context, is this worm does not die, or their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. And you might remember, hopefully you remember, that, the, that what Isaiah was referencing was King Josiah and the non-Levite priests. If you weren't here last week, I'm going to cover it briefly again, just because I know repetition is the greatest goal of any teacher. Josiah, King Josiah is called in Scripture without equivocation the greatest of the kings of Israel before him and after. None turned his heart, turned his mind, turned his soul to to God, to the Scriptures more so than Josiah. There was nobody to compare, not David, not Solomon, none of them. It's Josiah alone. That's what God says about him. Of all the human created kings of Israel, I recognize Christ, Melchizedek, if you will, as a king of Israel. They're the same, Melchizedek and Christ. But Josiah, of the human created kings, the greatest. And the reason was is because he he rounded up and killed thousands and thousands of non-Levite priests. Not to be a priest if you're a Levite. And he rounded them up because they were sacrificing children to the pagan god Moloch. And they did it by the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands. And Josiah killed them all. He realized that this was forbidden in Scripture. God opposed it and that God wished to end it. So you have King Josiah 
who at some point you're going to see the typology of him. Everything teaches us of Christ. King Josiah rounds up the pagans and he kills them all and he throws them into Gehenna, which was a dump or a big pit, if you will. Eventually became a garbage pit. But those bodies went in there of those priests and they were eaten by worms, maggots, effectively. And Isaiah says of that event, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Eventually, that became a garbage dump as well. And so you had a fire burning in there at all times. So you get this incredible symbol, this picture of the lake of fire. Josiah, the king of Israel, casting the bodies of the evil, wicked ones into a pit and their decomposing corpses becomes this type, this symbol for the eternal condemnation of the wicked. Their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. In other words, the fire is endless and their worm never consumes them. So anyone that tells you that there is no eternal condemnation, you will see it all the time in the universalist churches. You will see it in the seeker-sensitive churches. They will always say to you, well, God at some point will let everybody out of hell. That's not what Isaiah says. and That is not what God himself says when he quotes Isaiah. The worm does not die. Their fire is not quenched. Their fire is endless. Their worm never consumes them. The process of burning them and consuming them continues for all eternity. It's forever. Obviously, the context of Isaiah then is condemnation, is the lake of fire, is judgment. So now you look at this, for everyone will be salted or seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? That is in the context of the subject, which is the lake of fire, the destiny of those who reject their creator, their savior. So, that's how we figure out what salt is good. But if the salt loses its flavor, what that means is within that context. And I said last week that once you have that context and you evaluate that statement, you logically conclude very quickly that it is a statement of deity by Christ, and that for, therefore the case is closed, move along, nothing to see here. And some said to me afterwards in the post game, uh, you should add some intermediate steps so we can see if you're right. We don't know if we don't, uh, well, I don't think any of you feel such to be necessary, but, uh, you know, I'm trying to be considerate of the vast Internet audience. And uh, there may be one or two that would like to compare their logical progression with my logical progression to see if I've established uh, a complete proof or not. So that's what I'm going to do today. I might have to flip the thing over here. Ooh, I have to erase on both sides. Let me erase. Poor planning. Typically, this is the job of Terry to do this. Okay. I'm back. Every now and then when I go behind the the holy platinum reversible 
most holy platinum diverse, reversible dry erase board. People say immediately how more attractive I am. As you know, there's churches in town that are trying to make themselves more attractive. My suggestion, of course, is to put a bag over the pastor's head. As you know, that would be the first thing I would consider. Uh, or you could hide him behind the whatever. I've used that joke way too many times, haven't I? Some scholars have brought Matthew 5.13 and Luke 14.34 into this discussion, and, and well, they should. Matthew 5.13 and Luke 14.34 are necessary pieces to figure out what it means when he says, but if the salt loses its flavor right after he says salt is good. so And we're going to do that here in a second. But most of the people that have brought those two uh, verses in, or the, those two sections in, actually, they have uh, also adopted Unger's position. You might know who Unger is. He's a biblical scholar of many years past, saying that Christ was not really meaning real pure salt. When he said salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, they're saying that God is not really talking about salt. That's Unger's position. But instead, a residue that contains some salt. So it's not real salt, it's a residue, kind of a paste. But it was rendered saltless through dilution or uh, through a leaching out process. That's what they say. That's what, because they can't figure out if the salt loses its flavor. It's very difficult for salt to lose its flavor. So they're thinking, well, we've got to fix what God said here because God probably didn't know this. You know, maybe he was... Never mind. See, I responded that God made the salt. God knows if it's salt. Duh. So go from that position. Maybe you can figure it out. Don't try to have some convoluted nonsense. Sodium chloride uh, is stable. It does not, under normal circumstances, lose its saltness. It's salt, and it likes being salt, and it likes staying salt. And Mike, Mike, and Mark 9:50. These are the literal words. I don't want to do do the derivations of the of, uh, or the analysis of the words in the Greek. I'd never do that because I know the way you figure out what something means is really look at the context that surrounds it, and you will figure it out. Have a very high view of what God says, and these things will unlock themselves. If you have a very low view of God and you don't have the context, chances are you won't know. So that going down and parsing verbs and adverbs and pronouns and getting actual definitions of Greek terms, that's uh, for those, and I admire them that do, good for you. But if you do all of that and you don't have the context, you'll still screw it up. In Mark 9.50, Christ's words are plain. It literally says this, if the salt becomes not salt, or without salt, you can try without salt, but I'm telling you what he's saying there is, if the salt becomes not salt. So what's he mean? I recognize that the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea was the primary source of Israeli salt, Again, now I'm back to Sodom, Lot's wife, never mind. 
I got all of that salt sea, primary source salt, and I know that wasn't necessarily good salt, but that's not what God is saying. God is saying, if the salt becomes not salt. God did not say, if the not really actually salt degrades into a residue that is mostly dirt. He didn't say that. By the way, here's why you never admit to knowing how to do sheetrock. Anybody ever asked you, what is that sheetrock knife you have in your hands? Tell them you're flipping pancakes here in a minute. Do not tell them you know how to use a sheetrock knife. You will be forever tormented by them. God did not say it's not really salt that degrades into gypsum. That's how I got to sheetrock. That's not what he said. He didn't call the salt sheet. He didn't say it's sheetrock dust. He said, if the salt becomes not salt. So let's go from that direction for a change and see what happens. Thus, the most obvious of the obvious question. Every sacrifice, Leviticus 2, accepted by God must have salt in it. That's what he says. What's he mean by that? You put a sacrifice in front of him, it better have salt in it or he's not taking it. So, who is the sacrifice? Who is the salt? Salt is good, he says. Every sacrifice accepted by God will have good salt. No one is accepted without the good salt. Again, who's the salt? I could say it this way. Every sacrifice will have Jesus Christ. Christ is pure good. Christ is God himself manifested in the flesh. God, I'm sorry, Christ is salvation itself. His very name means salvation. All who have been saved will be saved by Christ. There will be none saved who are not saved by Christ. All will have been salted with the good salt. So, if the salt is not salt... What's Christ trying to say? Did he not say, how can anyone be seasoned? How can anyone be a seasoned, accepted sacrifice if the salt is not salt? And therefore, Christ must be God. I did it again, didn't I? Once you begin to figure out what he is actually saying, you figure out that he is saying, I'm God. But let's go ahead and ask, or add some more pieces. Let's go to Matthew. Let's see if I got it notated. I don't, so I have to look it up as a professional. Matthew 5. You might remember Matthew 5. If you've been here as long as I have. Do you realize that we are headed into, oh, from the first time that I started having lectures in other churches and in my house, I'm, I'm over 20 years here pretty soon. That's amazing to me. People have asked me, do you still have every single lecture you've done for the last 20 years? I do. I even have the ones I did when I taught high school. Why would you keep them? I have no idea. Does Lori like it that I'm keeping them? No, she doesn't. But I have them. Someday somebody will be able to burn them for heat in my wood stove that I've abandoned. Because why? Because I'll be watching. And I'll be gone. Anyway, here we go. 
This is the Beatitudes, ultimately, but we'll get back to that in a minute. We'll start at uh, 5, 11 through 15. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. And this is Christ himself saying this. This is God, creator God. Blessed are you. What does he mean when he says blessed are you? What's God's definition of that? We'll get to that in a second. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. So obviously that ties into what I just read, which but before that is the Beatitudes. So there's your order now. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. What did you just notice there? Two phrases. I got salt and light. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Okay? But there again is that familiar statement, right? If you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor. Now you can add that to Mark 9.50. Figure out who is the salt of the earth. Figure out who is the sacrifice. And try to solve that mysterious statement of God. Notice that which immediately precedes it. I won't read it, but notice what it is. I'll try to read it quickly. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted. And then this salt. If the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Ask some basic questions about the Beatitudes now. Knowing that it's going to conclude with salt and light. Knowing that that is something to do with Leviticus 2. God likes to incorporate his Levitical systems in everything he says. So it's very handy to be able to speak Leviticus. As you know, that's what we're trying to do, is we're trying to speak Leviticus and understand salt. Basic questions. What does poor in the spirit mean? Blessed are the poor in the spirit. What does that mean? What does God think it means? So first thing you do is you answer the question, what you think poor in spirit means, and then what do you do? You figure out if that's what God thinks it means. Blessed are those who mourn. What are they mourning for? Do you remember almost 20 years ago when I did this? You have an excuse. None of you were here but Bill and Bonnie. Is that right? I think so. Maybe Felice, were you here for this one? Yes, you were. Three. The rest... Some of you were not born. Okay, all of you here were born. The kids were not, obviously. Well, they're not mourning. What are they mourning for? They are mourning for their own sin. Blessed are those who mourn for their own sin. Why are the meek meek? What made them meek? What does meek mean to God? Does meek mean unable to defend yourself, unaggressive, Scared? 
It's not, he describes Moses as meek. It's not Moses. What does meek mean? How do the peacemakers make peace? Whenever I read that, I think of Colonel Colt, right? What did he call a Colt 45? Called it a peacemaker. How do peacemakers make peace? They just surrender? Is that what God says? I could go through the entire list and maybe next week we'll start beating it around again because it will be valuable to you. But ultimately, this comes down to the meaning of blessed. Every one of these that he lists uh, are blessed. What does blessed mean? What's God's definition of blessed? When he says you're blessed, is that a good thing? That's a good thing. What does it mean to be blessed? Obviously, blessed is a salvation term. Though These are the saved. And what do they do? They rejoice in their salvation. They recognize that it is an undeserved gift of mercy and they're rejoicing. And they are exceedingly glad because great is this reward that they did not earn and did not deserve. So the context then is salvation. And following salvation, attached to salvation, attached to blessing, is you are salt, you are light. So now we've learned something else. That salt has something to do with light. We already learned that before in Leviticus. Because we found out oil has something to do with light and salt has something to do with oil and incense. Salt of the earth light of the world. Notice Christ says, if salt loses its flavor, he does not say, if the light dims, or if the light is extinguished, right? To repeat, God is saying, if salt loses its flavor, what does God mean by that? What does he mean by flavor? Let's start there. If you still haven't worked this out, I know most of you here have, so bear with me, because I I also know that the percentage that listens by the Internet has not figured this out. It is not as it is in Mark 9.50. What I mean by that is what's said in 5.13. Let me repeat it. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? That is not the same sentence It is in Mark 9.50. Mark 9.50 says salt is not salt. This really is something different here. I won't tell you the word yet. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses something, how shall it be seasoned? In 9.50, he says salt is salt, is not salt, I'm sorry. And you know, prayer salt is always salt. So in here in 5.13 of Matthew, there is a Discussion, a great debate really, over what is meant by flavor. And, and this is 5.13, and here is 9, whoops, here is 9.50, there is a difference. Here it's, what if salt is not salt? Here it is this flavor, word that has been savored in the old King James. This word that is translated, I could again give you the Greek, but I won't. The consensus of the commentators of what it means here in verse 13 of Matthew 5 is 
coalesced, it finally agreed, uh, they all gathered around to convict of, of folly. So this word in Matthew 5.13, that is translated flavor in your, most of your Bibles, or savor, um, the, the, the taste, if you will, is to convict of folly. That's what that word means. So let me reread it for you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt is convicted of folly, how shall it be seasoned? God then is saying, if the salt is convicted of foolishness, that, by the way, is giving you a clue as to what salt means here. Then all you have to do is put it back into the 950 and see if salt is salt in both places. What do you think? Would God have known when he said this three times in three different places uh, what he was talking about? Did he know that uh, we might be confused? Did he know somebody would make a mistake? Did he give us this information in three places on purpose in his Bible, his word? Of course he did. If the salt is convicted of foolishness, let me say it this way. If the, fall of the salt is made to be simple, if the salt is made to be senseless, if the salt is made to be nonsense, if the salt is found to be nonsense, if the salt has been judged to be, uh, here's my personal favorite, stupid, then how will, it, how will it be able to be on the sacrifice? Leviticus 2. And all of that is in the context of salvation, the great reward, the blessedness. So the obvious question number one is how is it that salt can be made to be absurd or irrational? And who's doing it? How can the great reward be convicted of being ridiculous in a sense? How can I, how can he look at salt in the sacrifice and say the salt in the sacrifice is ridiculous. Well, obviously, if the salt that is made to be ridiculous has been, that has been convicted of being absurd, has been convicted of being inane, has been convicted of being stupid, if somebody, if you put the Godhood of Christ at risk, then you end up with this. You end up convicting of folly. Now, I know the Godhood of Christ cannot be put at risk. The Godhood of Christ, Christ's deity is inviolable. I make that clear. But go to any church here in a few days and see what they do. They will put the Godhood of Christ on display and they will degrade it. That's what they will do. It happens every December, right? And every Ishtar. But if, as an example, let's say, someone were to propose a system of salvation, and the Godhood or the deity of Christ is absent from that system, and they tell you that this is a Christian system. God says, no, you have just rendered such a system convicted of stupidity. 
And by the way, who's going to be the judge as to whether the salt is salt or not? Who is going to say, that's salt, that's not salt? If you stand before him as an offered sacrifice and you have not salt, how you doing? Not good. You better have the salt. All the sacrifices have to have salt. All the offerings have to have salt. Don't go up there with not salt. He calls that folly. Who's going to pronounce the verdict? Who's the convictor of the folly? Who's the judge? Who's going to render the sentence? And that's beyond obvious. That's Christ himself. Will Christ be able to recognize himself when a not salt shows up? He will. He will say, that's not me. It says it all over the Bible. You don't have me. He says in 824 John, you must have me or you will perish in your sins. There is no room for not salt. So we're making progress, I hope. We have quite a ways to go before we resolve the Beatitudes and the salt and the light. But we've got another incredible statement of Christ where he does it again with the salt. And so we should get that in here to mix it in. And of course, all the words uh, from the Lord himself, from the word of the, himself. I mean, God is the word. So I should say an incredible statement. All the words of Christ are in, indescribably amazing. They're God's statements. So let's go to Luke I just fall into human frailty there when I say dumb things like that. Let's go to Luke 14:25 now and add this third salt section. A while back when I did this on a much lower level, I had a young person come up to me and say, you go into a lot of trouble just to figure out one little verse in the Bible. And I said, yeah, I am, baby. That's what I'm doing. When I stand up there, I hope to be able to say, hey, I went to a lot of trouble to just figure out one verse in the Bible. I'll be happy with that. I used to say it this way. They would tell me all the time, I get this a lot even today. I'll get it this week. You make the Bible really complicated. And I'm pretty proud of that too. I'm going to stand up there and say, I thought every verse I read in your Bible was complicated and went infinite directions, high, low, and out, diagonally, every possible way. It just kept going. I assumed it connected. My friend over here thinks your Bible was really simple. I won't say that. But you can imagine which one I would rather be, the one that thought the Bible was infinite and extraordinary, or the one that thought or thinks that it is simple. How long will you love the not, not salt? Okay, Luke 14. Let me find it here. Start at verse 25. How are we doing? Doing good. Now, great multitudes went with him. That makes sense. They're hungry and they're dying. I'm just getting near him. I get healed and I get fed, right? And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, 
wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. This verse causes lots of problems, and unnecessarily so. And also, no, I'm sorry, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. A lot of people that think they know what that means and they have no idea. So at least I hope I'll clear that up for you today. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. When I first read that, I went, oh man, that's me. Over and over again, I'm the concrete guy. Never mind. Or what king goes to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now that, by the way, that is as filled a piece of, oh my goodness, it's amazing what's in there. I won't even begin to scratch it or do it justice. But now he concludes that with salt is good. Here's your third place. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? And that's the same word as to convict with folly. So let me reread it. Salt is good, but if the salt has been convicted with folly, how shall it be seasoned? What's the it in that sentence, by the way? I'm going to make the case the it is Leviticus 2.13. It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears, let him hear. Who are the ones that can figure this out? Who can understand what he said? So here we are again. Salt is good, but if the salt is convicted of stupidity, how shall the sacrifice be seasoned? It's not Mark 9.50. Mark 9.50 stands alone in the tri Trinity of salt here, if you will. In Mark 9.50, the salt is not salt. And I'll leave it up to you to mark the distinctions if there is a difference, in fact, between Mark 9.50 and 5.13 of Matthew and Luke 14.34. Is it, do you, you can go home and figure this out, is to convict of, of folly or to convict of stupidity or absurdity or to render nonsensical or to re, render useless is that the same as salt is not salt? Is it the same thing? Have fun with that. But what is meant, let's back up a second, we're not going to figure it out, but what is meant by hating your father and mother? Let me reread it. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his mother and father, or father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my desirable. Immediately, when, you, when he says, if you don't hate your mother and father, what do you think? What's the first place you should go? Exodus 20. You're absolutely right. Exodus 20.12. What's Exodus 20.12 say? Love your father and mother. 
Did God not remember that he wrote? Oh, please, just stop, just stop. Okay. So what does he mean here? How does Luke 14.26 conform with Exodus 20? By the way, this is back to Romans 9.13. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have loved less. Whenever you see that word hate, invariably, almost overwhelmingly, it means loved less. And it's talking about priority. What I mean by priority is you have an order of who you love. And who has to be your number one priority? Everybody tells me, I get it all the time, people will come up to me, oh, I love God. (sighs) Well, if you do, you just violated rule one of loving God, which is to go around bragging about how much you love God. So, you've immediately made me suspicious of you. How are you supposed to convince people you love them? By the way, let's just talk about governmental systems really fast. It is not the job of the Christian to go and make regulations to force people to act like Christians. That won't ever work. It's not what God says to do. What does he say Christians do? Do they pass laws to say you must act like Christians? No, he never says to do that. He says go out and act appropriately as someone who has submitted himself to obedience to me. You draw people by how you act, what you say and do, not your laws. You cannot legislate the pagans out of paganism. It's hopeless. That's what the Bible says. So anyway, you have a priority. A number one, duh. Number two should not be your dogs. They should be maybe a little lower. Okay, they, should, they could be ahead of your children, but no, never mind. I, I get in a lot of trouble. But he is saying, have priority, and does not love less his father and mother. So if you don't understand that, back you go to Romans nine thirteen. But that's the easy. One. There aren't any easy ones. When I get into love less, I could go for months. But let's go on. What is the meaning of whosoever does not bear his cross? Why am I doing this again? What's my, what am I trying to do for you? I'm trying to define salt. What is the meaning of whosoever does not bear his cross? And by the way, as soon as he said that, bear a cross, everyone in that Jewish crowd immediately understood what he meant. They knew this term. They knew it in its totality. See, what's... Uh, Who are the ones that bear a cross in this society, in this particular time, in this particular place? Who who bears a cross? If you were bearing a cross, you got a very, very what on top of you? Very, very heavy, big what? Piece of wood. Might weigh hundreds of pounds. So he says, whosoever has a piece of wood on his back. Who's the people with pieces of wood on their backs? What's happening to them? They're being executed. Who's doing it? The Romans are doing it. Those who bear a cross are those who are being brutally killed by the Romans. And the carrying of the cross beam, as you all know, being burdened 
by the weight of the cross beam was a was done intentionally. It's a Roman method. It is making a statement. Everybody who has a hold of that cross beam is saying something about themselves. That's why the Romans did it. The Romans had horses and they had men and they had wagons. They could have easily put the crossbeam in the wagon, but that's not what they did. They made you carry it. Now, we can argue whether or not they lashed it to them, tied it to them, or if they just beat them every time they dropped it. It was probably the latter. They wanted them to carry it to demonstrate that the man is carrying it because he chooses to carry it. He wasn't forced to carry it in the sense where it's tied to him. He's He's demonstrating, I'm carrying this crossbeam. I have this very unusual, hardly ever read position on the crucifixion, as you know, about what Christ did during his own crucifixion. He did something that was absolutely astonishing. And he did it by the way he carried his crossbeam. He didn't do it the way the Romans wanted him to do it. Because he's God. He doesn't play fair. You don't get to manipulate him. So throw out all your Mel Gibson movies because God just destroys them right here in this sentence. The carrying of the crossbeam, as you know, meant the Romans saw this demonstration of the condemned man struggling with his crossbeam because that was the purpose, to make him struggle with it. It was heavy and he was already exhausted and beaten. And they wanted him to fall down a lot so they could beat him some more. Most people didn't survive this portion, the scourging portion. That was fine with them. Saved him a lot of work. So, the Romans saw the struggling, the man, the men struggling with the crossbeam as he marched through the city to be a public confession. This is a confession. It's the same as what we would consider a written confession in a courtroom. You carry a crossbeam, you're confessing. And what are you confessing to? The condemned were admitting that Rome was correctly executing them. What are the chances that Christ confessed that Rome was correctly executing him? Zero. Every movie you see that has Christ carrying his crossbeam, you need to know that that movie is saying that Christ is guilty and that he is admitting his guilt. It is an admission of guilt. It is a plea of guilty, if you will, which is more evidence that Christ didn't do it. And this has something to do with salt. Christ did not struggle with the crossbeam, as if you guys needed more proof. I know you don't. But it'll be astonishing for many people to hear me say this again for the thousandth time. They just never have heard it their whole lives. I am fond of saying that in my view, Christ not only didn't struggle with it, because he's God, can he lift 200 pounds of wood or whatever? Of course he can. I, I like to say in kind of a an offbeat way, that Christ twirled his crossbeam like a baton. He used it like a pointer. While he's, he's, he's speaking to a crowd in an extremely loud voice, saying some of the most profound things ever said. And he's just going with his crossbeam. 
everyone knew that he's not guilty. He isn't making a confession of guilt. Why isn't he making a confession of guilt? He has no guilt. He has no sin. He's God. Pure goodness. Duh. Now you can understand a little bit why Simon the Cyrenian, why the Romans grabbed him. He's coming from the opposite direction. They've got to have a guy confessing here. Christ isn't doing it. We've got big problems. There is The centurion said, I've never seen anything like this. I've executed thousands of people. I have never seen anyone do what he's done. Anyway, Christ is clearly referring here, you've got to make a public display of guilt if you're going to follow me. This has a lot of similarity to why he was baptized, by the way. Was he baptized because he needed to be baptized and and cleansed of his sin, had no sin. He's baptized because of the spot he was in, the location of where he went. He went in the same location as the axe head of Elisha and the uh, and the, where the ark went prior to them uh, uh, entering Israel, the second generation. So he's in that exact spot. He likes the Jordan River. He likes that spot. But he's saying to the people that want to follow him, that's us, you have to make a a public display. You have to do in a public acknowledgement of what? Of our guilt. This is a acknowledgement of guilt on the part of those who want to be his disciples. Beware of Christians. I see them all the time. I've met them many, many times. And they all say to me, they do not sin. The ones that say this. Beware of Christians that say they do not sin. Beware of Christians who say their sins are different than your sins. Beware of Christians who say they don't make sins of commission. They make sins of omission. Beware of those. Christ is saying, no, you have to make a confession. You have to confess uh, that you are a sinner. Flee from pastors and elders and Sunday school teachers that say they don't sin. Because they're now in a lot of trouble. What salt do they have? What is this concrete guy who can't build anything? That worried me when I first came across him years and years ago. And there are this king who surrenders when he sees he can't win. Uh-oh, I can't win. I surrender. I'm going to make peace. Who's he making peace with? Where's Christ in the story? Does Christ always talk about himself? Oh, absolutely he does. He's in the story. And obviously, the guy... They can't build anything on his foundation, and, or doesn't. And the king who surrenders when he sees he can't win, all of that has to do with salt being good. Next week, we will clean it up.